0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin... One of the more hopeful things you might not have heard about is the revival in the House of Representatives of the Forced Arbitration Injustice Repeal, or FAIR, Act, that would ban those ubiquitous small print agreements that annul critical worker and consumer rights, like the ability to bring class action lawsuits. Prominent proponents include Google employees and former Fox News anchor Gretchen Carlson. But as bill sponsor Hank Johnson of Georgia explained, it's really about narrowing the massive power differential between soulless corporations and individuals just trying to get by. We'll get some background on forced arbitration and why it matters from previous Counterspin conversations with Celine McNicholas from the Economic Policy Institute and Joanne Dorishow from the Center for Justice and Democracy. An important, if hidden, engine of the corporate corrosion of worker-consumer rights has been the National Labor Relations Board, the federal enforcer of labor law. It seems like change is afoot there. Biden apparently called for the resignation of the board's general counsel, famously anti-union Peter Robb, 23 minutes after becoming president. He fired Robb when he refused to resign, and then Biden fired the next Trump appointee who took the job. We talked about the Trump-era NLRB while it was happening with Cornell University's Kate Bronfenbrenner. We'll hear part of that conversation today. That's all coming up on Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The press release for a 2019 report from the Economic Policy Institute and the Center for Popular Democracy included a straightforward quote from Oregon College student Brenda Rojas. While working at Buffalo Wild Wings, my co-workers and I experienced wage theft regularly and worked in an environment of constant sexual harassment. Complaining about these working conditions was pointless because we had signed a forced arbitration clause, and the company knew that we couldn't fight back in court. None of us understood the forced arbitration language when we signed our new hire paperwork, but we were told that if we did not check all the boxes, we would not be hired." How can students like me build a brighter economic future when our employers are allowed to rip us off? Close quote. We talked with one of the report's authors, Celine McNicholas, Director of Government Affairs and Labor Council at the Economic Policy Institute. We asked about the significance of releasing that report on the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Epic Systems versus Lewis.
1: Epic Systems essentially codified the problem that you just revealed in the quote that you read, that workers are increasingly being required to sign away their right to sue when their employment rights are violated by their employer. And Epic Systems essentially green-lighted employers' Embracing that practice. And unfortunately, going into the decision, you know, the majority of workers were already sort of facing the threat of this. And we now know that employers are increasingly embracing it since the decision. So a year out, we're seeing this more and more.
0: Well, we talk in media and elsewhere about the labor market as though people were mobile economic actors who can make informed choices about where to work. So if you don't want to sign away your right to a class action lawsuit, the unspoken thing thinking goes. Don't take a job that requires it. Well, we should take issue with that idea. And obviously, people have never been identically situated with regard to choices. But your report makes it clear that in the private sector and the non-union private sector, not signing these things is increasingly just not an option. And it's not just college students and their first jobs.
1: That's exactly right. You know, and I think you hit on the fundamental myth, right, that we're all sort of free agents in this economy. And I think it's wonderfully encouraging that unemployment continues to decrease and, you know, wages for the first time in a long time are actually experiencing some level of, a, of an uptick. But still, you know, most working people feel lucky to have a job and feel that they have very little leverage in that initial negotiation with their employer for the terms and conditions of their work. And so in practicality, we all know we can all sort of admit that we signed the paperwork on the first day on the job and, you know, we're happy to be signing up for, potentially if we're lucky enough to sign up for health care and all of the other tangential forms, you know, we also may be signing away this right without even really realizing the implications of what we've been asked to sign as a condition of working there. And that's a really troubling trend because it impl- it applies across all employment rights.
0: Well, these forced arbitration clauses that the report says projects by 2024, 80% of private sector non-union workers will be covered by these, these forced arbitration clauses. Let's spell it out. What is wrong with forced arbitration?
1: So short answer is everything. We'll <laughs> go into to detail here. So essentially, when you are forced to arbitrate a claim, an employment claim, I would argue in particular, because we just talked about the fact that most workers, you have limited leverage on the job. The employer, if they're not happy with you, you know, they can fire you for any reason at all, just not a narrow set of prohibited reasons that are, you know, protected reasons under the law. Yeah. Let's say you're being sexually harassed in your workplace, but you've been forced to sign an arbitration agreement on that first day. That means that if you're not getting any kind of relief, you go to HR, you go to your supervisor, and he or she says, okay, we're going to help you resolve this, but we're going to do it through arbitration. You have no right to sue us. That immediately limits your leverage, but it also puts you into a process that hugely favors that employer because you're going it alone. You're using a system that they're paying for, they being the employer, that disadvantages all workers.
0: So you very specific are prohibited from joining together with other folks in the workplace who are experiencing the same problems that you might be.
1: Yes, because many of these waivers include what you just referenced, a class or collective action component. And that means that you're in this system, arbitration, which is this unequal, unfair system, because the employer is really the entity that is a repeat player. That means that they are more familiar with the arbitrators. They're often giving them business. So there's sort of this implied injustice in the whole system itself. But then in addition to that, you're doing this alone. You're navigating it as an individual worker. Whereas if you suit as a class or collective action, you would have a great deal more leverage.
0: And I understand that mainly what it does is just kind of discourage. It's not even so much that workers lose when they go through this process, knowing that that's their only option pretty much discourages them from taking action in the first place.
1: I think that that's exactly right. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Just think of how difficult and practicality it is to voice any kind of concern in your place of work, figuring out who do you go to. Oftentimes, a supervisor may be unfortunately involved in the conduct that is violating the law. And so you're navigating an already difficult process, and then you're being kind of compelled to do so on your own. Most folks are not familiar with arbitrations. It sounds like an incredibly formal process. And it would not be incorrect if the employer says this is going to cost you money because that means that oftentimes workers are absorbing some of the cost for the process itself. And in addition to that, they can say you're going to be unlucky in this system because we've navigated this a couple of times and your fellow workers haven't done very well in the process. And as you point out, like that is true. So it's not as advantageous. People do worse in the system than they do in court.
0: Well, there are meant to be entities that are enforcing these workplace rules, you know, even if the sort of David versus Goliath situation of individual workers is is disadvantageous. There are protective entities, government agencies that are meant to be looking out for them. The report also deals with problems in that enforcement area. What's the What's the problem or the concern there?
1: This is sort of a perfect storm, in my view, because what you're seeing is decreased public enforcement. There are fewer and fewer public dollars being invested in enforcing workplace protections. So at the same time that many of us in our work are being asked to sign away our private right of action through this system of forced arbitration, we are also facing fewer and fewer cops on the beat in terms of public enforcement of those rights. Department of Labor, State Departments of Labor, budgets have decreased while the workforce has expanded. And that leaves all of us with less protection in the workplace and also combined with forced arbitration, it's such an incredible advantage, which is where that sort of ominous title of this report comes from. You know, it is an incredible advantage to corporate employers at this point because they are making enforcement of any means, whether private or public, something that the vast majority of the workforce is losing access to.
0: Well, we have these laws, you know, we make these laws on wages against wage theft or on workplace safety. And then it seems like with EPIC, the Supreme Court is just kind of waving them away. I mean, it's kind of a balance of powers question too, isn't it? I mean, it seems like a real lopsided power that the court is exercising here.
1: Absolutely. And in my view, Congress needs to act on this to restore the rights that were hard-won protections when they were originally enacted. Title VII, the right that fundamentally you can't be discriminated against, harassed in the workplace, that's an enacted law, that's an enacted protection. And essentially, it has been made very difficult, if not impossible, for, you know, many, many workers in this country to access that right. Congress needs to then restore the right and sort of say, hey, you know, Supreme Court, you've misinterpreted this. You've essentially made this something that is no longer enforceable for the vast majority of workers when we gave this protection to the U.S. workforce. You've overstepped, just as you said, and now we want to correct you. And, and, and this is not the first time that something like this has happened where Congress have had to come in and, you know, correct something that the Supreme Supreme Court has misinterpreted and is my hope that they will do so here because this cuts across fundamental rights like even being paid the minimum wage. It is more difficult to enforce those rights when you have a system of forced arbitration that the Supreme Court has essentially blessed at this point in time.
0: The Supreme Court's 2018 EPIC Systems ruling rested on previous decisions, like one in 2013, that said that the fact that the arbitration process might cost plaintiffs, workers, or consumers fighting mammoth corporations more than they could hope to recover was immaterial. Quote, antitrust laws do not guarantee an affordable procedural path to the vindication of every claim, close quote, sniffed Antonine Scalia. In 2015, the New York Times ran an important series exposing the machinations that lay behind such thinking. We talked about that with Joanne Dorishow, founder and executive director of the Center for Justice and Democracy.
2: Yeah. I mean, what we found out from this New York Times series is that in 1999, a bunch of big companies got together in a room and decided how they were going to start strategizing to make sure that they could start doing this to consumers, that they could start inserting these clauses and banning class actions and that the U.S. Supreme Court would uphold it. It was really startling to find out that the current Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, when he was a corporate defense lawyer, was part of all of that. He was representing Discover, the credit card company at the time. And so now we're stuck with these decisions.
0: It seems important, again, to underscore... That class action lawsuits, while they might be about the thirty dollars overcharge that one person got, they they really also are the only way, and in, in some way, that you can expose wrongdoing on a big scale. I mean, some of these cases are about. Taco Bell, for example, the charge that they at least one outlet was denying black people promotions. You know, it might the class action lawsuit isn't just about the particular legal remedies for individuals. They really are about exposing wrongdoing on a larger scale.
2: Absolutely. I mean, one of the most famous class actions in history was Brown versus Board of Education. It is a very important tool for anyone who has been discriminated against or who wants to try to hold uh, big institutions to account for any kind of wrongdoing. Well, the
0: pushback to the Times series is already underway. Forbes had a piece saying, Aha, the Times doesn't tell you who the lawyer was for one of the businesses involved in a case against American Express. He's a lawyer known for fighting credit card companies. That's the real face of consumer class action. These aren't lawsuits by little guys trying to vindicate their rights. They're lawsuits by wealthy attorneys trying to get wealthier.
2: Well, that's the only thing they have to say, is try to blame lawyers. But there's nothing that I've seen so far in any of the critiques coming from business of these New York Times articles that suggest in any way that there is anything inaccurate about anything they said. What these businesses try to do is make it seem as if consumers are not benefiting from these class actions. But what we also know is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in March after a long empirical study, they found in just like the last year, tens of millions of people benefiting to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: Counterspin spoke with Joanne Dorishow again in 2018 in the immediate wake of the Supreme Court's 5-4 ruling in Epic Systems.
2: Just to step back for a minute, it's it's not, of course, just workers that are affected right. by the problem we're talking about. And the problem we're talking about are forced arbitration clauses that are buried in the fine print of these days most credit cards, cell phone, any kind of online terms of use agreement, nursing home admission forms, many other everyday contracts, and including employment contracts. And what they mean is that if the company cheats, defrauds, discriminates against or harms you in some way, you cannot sue the company in court or have any kind of judge or jury trial and instead you're forced to resolve your your case in a private, secret, rigged arbitration system that's controlled by the company. And you may have to pay the arbitrator. There's no right to appeal. And these clauses also have what's called class action bans or class action waivers, which means that you, as you say, you cannot join with others. You have to only litigate your dispute individually, your, you know, small claim, let's say, in most cases, this is going to mean that you're not going to be able to bring your dispute to any kind of resolution at all because you're not going to be able to afford to do that. That's why class actions are so important. It allows you to join with others, cover the expenses that way. And also when we're talking about like discrimination, let's say, or harassment, it's critical that you be able to join with others in order to show a pattern or a practice of discrimination or a systemic company policy. You can't do that as an individual. So there are many reasons why class actions are so important. And what this decision did, it basically said that an employer can unilaterally prevent you from bringing class action and and force you into these secret arbitration systems.
0: Well, and it rests in as much as there's an argument for it. It rests on this in a vacuum kind of libertarian fantasy world in which labor, for example, is as mobile as capital, and all workers are and consumers are completely informed and have choices. You know, so if, for example, your prospective employer requires you as a stipulation for employment to sign away your right to class action suits, well, you just pick another employer, you know, you, you just go elsewhere, you know, and in the case of Epic Systems, they sent a form to their employees. And if you showed up for work, then you were deemed to have accepted the terms of that agreement. So you talk about small print, I mean, it's it's small print, and it's also a Uh, kind of
2: blackmail in a way. Yes, and that goes to the issue of consent. You know, what the other side says is, oh, you've consented because you've signed this. Well, these are all take-it-or-leave-it contracts, and if you don't take it, you don't get a job, or, you know, in the context of consumer contracts, everybody in the entire industry has them. There is no negotiation here. And, you know, sadly what Congress was trying to do with the National Labor Relations Act in the 1930s is they, they made it illegal for employers to interfere in any way with the employees' rights to engage in, quote, concerted activity. They knew that there was strength in numbers and they need to be able to join with others in order to get a fair deal from big companies, from employers. And what this case did is basically said that, Legal concerted activity like a class action, it's okay to violate that section, basically, of the National Labor Relations Act. It's okay for an employer to prevent concerted legal activity. So it really undermines the entire purpose of the labor law, which was the seminal piece of legislation enacted in the 30s. You know, it's shocking that the court would just so casually do something like this and, and yet, and they did it, you know, in a five to four vote. It was certainly not inevitable, but it was unfortunately once Neil Gorsuch got on the court, the vote became that and he was the one that wrote this decision.
0: The National Labor Relations Board is the interpreter of U.S. labor law, charged with protecting employees' rights and with encouraging collective bargaining. Authors of the National Labor Relations Act were well aware that workers' safety and strength lay in their numbers. While multiple factors have undermined workers' power for decades, the Trump-era NLRB still managed to make things worse. We talked in late 2019 with Kate Bronfenbrenner, director of labor education research and senior lecturer at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She said the problems were clear from the start.
3: Well, we could just look at the, the appointees that came to the board under Trump. The, the first appointee, John Ring, had to recuse himself from the first decision that came before the board when he came through, he was actually involved in the company that the decision was on. He didn't recuse himself, and then they had to reverse the decision because he was actually
0: involved with the employer. It says a lot. Well, well, let's pull back just a little bit and explain what the NLRB is. I mean, it's kind of like the FCC. You've just indicated it's these five presidential appointees. It's always going to be weighted by the party that's in power. But right now, there's just four of them, right? There's a vacant seat. That's right. Well, their rulings are binding, though. Even if you're not used to seeing them in the in the headlines, but they do have a a, a legal effect in workplaces, right? They do,
3: and. They've always been somewhat of a political animal in that, you know, the president, when there's a vacancy, they get to fill that vacancy. But it's never been an effort to have extreme people on the board. Right. But under the Trump administration, the appointees has been extremists. And that has really changed the tenor of the board.
0: Well, I wanted to, to draw you out a bit on that because I saw you cited in a piece by Bobby Murray at Capitol and Maine, saying that it, it's not uncommon when an administration changes, when a new White House comes in, for National Labor Relations Boards to reverse some decisions, some preceding decisions, but that what's happening now with the Trump NLRB is of a different order. What What are you talking about there?
3: The decisions have been to reverse longstanding precedents as opposed to reversing cases that have been always debated. So before, the trend was to reverse cases that have been always one of debate, where There was a one vote difference. Mm -hmm. But now the reversals have been on cases that had been upheld for decades. And that's a very different, very different trend. Long standing principles before the board.
0: Well, can you talk about a recent decision on how employers can stop bargaining? It sounds like it's minutiae and it's huge, in fact, in its impact, this new decision, calling for a new union election every time the contract is up for expiration.
3: The board is now giving employers much more power to question the majority status of the unit. Before, it was up to workers to file a desert petition at the end of the contract. If workers wanted to decertify the union, it was up for workers to file a decertification. Decertification means that they no longer want the union. But the employer wasn't the one that initiated that. The workers did. The only way the employer could say that they felt that the union shouldn't be there is if they had a really strong reason to believe the union no longer represented the majority, for example, that there had been a complete turnover in the workforce, Mm -hmm. that they knew that all the workers they had hired were no longer there. But now, the employer can call for an election and that there should be a decertification election and not wait for the workers to do that. And they can do that every time the contract expires. That's a huge
0: change. And sort of throw everything into turmoil. It just seems like a tremendous lever to move over to the employer's hand.
3: And it's most of all, it means the union has to spend energy every time the contract comes up. The union has to spend its energy dealing with running through an election process rather than working on building the power for bargaining. And unions will probably win those, but it's a negative effort rather than the positive effort of building power for bargaining.
0: Well, I think that although listeners may not have known about some of these NLRB decisions, they may not be surprised. They are kind of fitting in with a slew of anti-worker actions that we've seen from this administration from Letting companies that commit wage theft police themselves, you know, and denying extension of overtime protections and undercutting anti-discrimination enforcement, we could go on and on. But I know that at the same time as we see this administration trying to lock down this anti-organizing board, we also do see a lot of tangible worker victories, teachers, for instance, but then also the fight for 15. And if you expand your understanding of who labor is, there's plenty to see right now that's encouraging, don't you think?
3: Well, we see young workers more excited about unions than ever before. And that means that the future will have more union support. That's a positive trend that is very exciting. We see an an increased interest among white-collar workers. We see digital media is organizing. We see workers across the industrial spectrum organizing. That's a new trend. We also see that immigrant workers, despite all the pressures against them, what a frightening time it is that they are organizing. And Despite all the shenanigans about misclassification of workers, contract workers have been organizing for decades. Mm -hmm. And I think that it shows that no matter what employers do, workers still try to organize. So Uber workers and Lyft workers have been going on strike, trying to
0: organize. Yeah, it seems that workers recognize that. The playing field is not what it was, but there is, if anything, maybe maybe I'm hopeful, but I do see a revival of worker-organized activity inside and outside of traditional unions as we understand them. Yes,
3: and there's been a groundswell of organizing among low-wage workers, high-tech workers, and much of it is led by women of color.
0: That was Kate Bronfenbrenner from 2019. Before her, you heard Joanne Dora Show from 2018 and Celine McNicholas from 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noise. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.